This is Deirdre Wallenick, mother of a free solo climber, Alex Honnold, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak with a doctor that is part of a handful of allergists in the U.S. that are revolutionizing the way anaphylactic food allergies are treated. The body is recognizing something that should be harmless as a threat. Dr. Manav Sagal is an allergist based in Philadelphia to which my family owes a great debt for curing our son's debilitating allergy to dairy by offering a treatment for food allergies called oral immunotherapy or OIT. One in 13 kids have food allergies now. OIT has been around in the U.S. for many years now, but it is still far from being widespread among physicians who treat allergies, many of whom continue to warn their patients that a lifetime of strict avoidance is the only treatment. The parents and patients themselves said, you know, there has to be something more that we can do about this than just avoidance. I speak to Dr. Sagal to share how this too-good-to-be-true story could be true for your family. And we talk about why the rate of food allergies has accelerated rapidly in the last two decades. The American Academy of Pediatrics and um, Allergy Society has speculated, well, maybe it's because we're introducing peanuts and tree nuts and milk and egg too soon. But they just got it wrong. We talk about the budding culture shift among physicians towards widespread acceptance of OIT. It wasn't until about 2017 that the American Academy of Pediatrics changed their recommendations that actually early introduction is what may help slow the development of increased numbers of food allergies. What's the latest pediatric advice about the early introduction of common food allergens to babies? What's the percentage of kids that will outgrow food allergies? And what's the difference between celiac disease, characterized by wheat intolerance, and a wheat allergy? So if I wanted to diagnose celiac disease and I said, well, I'll do a skin test to wheat, that would be the wrong test to try and figure that out. Welcome to The Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller. And this is episode 14 of season two, The Daring Doctor, Treating Food Allergies with OIT. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. I'm excited to speak today with Dr. Manav Sagal. He's an allergist and immunologist who treats asthma and allergies in children and adults in his Winmore and City Center Philadelphia offices. He's the first allergist in private practice in Pennsylvania to offer oral immunotherapy, OIT, which is something we're going to speak about today in depth in order to successfully treat food allergies, including those to milk, egg, peanut, and tree nuts, which, as I will share with you today, is a very debilitating sort of life sentence for anyone who suffers from those allergies. Dr. Sagal was one of the first doctors in the region to introduce allergy cluster immunotherapy to treat seasonal allergies, which provides a faster track to well-being. He's board certified by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and the American Board of Internal Medicine. 
Dr. Sagel is Chief of Allergy and Immunology at Chestnut Hill Hospital and is on staff at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and Methodist Hospital. It's my pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Sagel, today. How are you? I'm doing great. and It's good to catch up with you as well. Likewise, it's been a while since I've seen you. And um, the last time I saw you, we were graduating. My son was graduating from dairy allergy treatment, OIT, oral immunotherapy, in your office in Philadelphia, which yeah. we made the the two and a half hour drive to every week, I think, sometimes twice a week, if I'm not remember if I'm remembering correctly. I, I might have blocked that from my memory because it was quite an effort. Every, every week and maybe every two weeks. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, we found you. This was now, I think, maybe four years ago that we started this treatment right. with you. And at the time, I remember distinctly, I was speaking with my brother about how I wish there was some sort of um, immunotherapy treatment, like like there is for seasonal allergies for for these debilitating anaphylactic food allergies that my son had had since birth to dairy and all nuts, all peanut and peanuts and tree nuts. Um, in, including other things like soy. And um, so we, you know, like most of your patients, I, I'm sure we, our lives as parents uh, quickly changed once we realized he was uh, mortally uh, allergic within, right. you know, he could die within a minute. We would tell babysitters <laughs> just to put the fever, the fear of God in them, right? You have to tell them how to respond to these allergies, very serious allergies, which we had to live with and adapt our entire lives to and avoid those contaminants, um, which we'll talk about today, what, how that works in the body and, and exactly what you're doing. But when we found out about you, you're, you're one of the few people in, on the East Coast. I said to my wife, I said, if, if he was in Maine, we would fly up there once a week if we had to. It's right. that life-changing of a discovery. Sure. And um, I remember first coming to your office and, and you just sort of explained it matter of fact, like, yeah, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, in about six months, he'll be having real milk or something like that. Right. So yeah. I'm yeah. eager to talk to you about sure. this for the benefit of others sure. today. I'm, I'm grateful to you for really changing uh, our our life. And, and now our son has, of course, graduated. That was maybe sure. at least two years ago with you. So he now takes a full dose of uh, a, a maintenance dose of milk every right. day, basically a glass of milk a day to keep his system um, primed and and used to that. And right. he's also started OIT with with peanuts and he's since finished that um, that treatment with peanuts. So now he's eating peanuts every day, drinking milk every day. We're gonna we're about to start OIT for for all tree nuts. So he's wow. gonna be Good. really on his way to kind of being allergy free. Sure. Um, in addition, he did seasonal allergy shots many years ago as well, which got him yeah. really off of the inhalers. So I know many parents are excited, would be very interested to hear about your perspective here. And um, I guess maybe can you can you start by talking about why you started doing this um, treatment and, and why there are so few allergists who are, who are doing it even now? So oral immunotherapy, you described it, it's a way to get someone who may even be highly allergic to a food less allergic to it. It's not a cure, but you can build someone's tolerance slowly, gradually, systematically over a period of time. Um, as you pointed out, at the, when we started oral immunotherapy in 2016, um, it, there was some um, small research studies at the academic institutions, but in terms of private practice doctors offering it in the region, 
Um, aside from me, when I started, there wasn't anyone. But you know, you were driving up from Maryland. I don't think there was anyone in you know close by to you at the time. There was no one in Delaware. Uh, there was no one in South uh, New Jersey. So um, uh, you know, I w- at that time um, I was serving a pretty large um, area. Um, since then, more doctors have adopted it, and right. you know, it's it, at the time um, that I started, uh, I was about one of about 70 allergists in the country who were offering it. So I had predecessors um, before me uh, who kind of paved the way and um, taught me the ropes uh, so that I could start offering it to my patients. And in the time frame that we're talking about, you know, these four years, uh, you know, you've uh, found an allergist close to you who's been able to continue that treatment and I think that the number of allergists who are adopting this uh, type of treatment is going to continue to grow uh, exponentially. Um, so it's a, it's a it's good for uh, parents to hear that and also uh, uh, recognize that while you had to make that two and a half hour drive once a week to twice a month, um, you know nowadays uh, people should be able to find physicians closer to home who can at least offer this type of treatment. We're glad to see that increasing as well. Maybe for people hearing about this with food allergies, it's probably helpful for us to just start from the very beginning here. Sure. So, you know, basically these foods that kids are becoming allergic to, and it seems to be the same culprit foods over and over again, milk, egg, peanut, tree nut, fish, shellfish, and increasingly sesame. These foods account for 80 to 90% of food allergies. And in these cases, the body is recognizing something that should be harmless as a threat. And so it's mounting an immune response when it encounters uh, these food proteins when they're ingested. The symptoms of an allergic reaction are pretty typical. Um, they you know, can um, uh, range from mild to severe. Uh, they're unpredictable. And so it's the severe reactions that we're most concerned about because it could be potentially life-threatening. uh, The reason that they can be severe is they can cause uh, swelling of the throat or tongue and that can obstruct the airway. They can cause respiratory symptoms like um, asthma symptoms. Um, They can cause a drop in blood pressure. Generally, the types of symptoms are itching, hives, wheezing, gastrointestinal symptoms. So you can see that you can ingest a small amount of this food protein, but you can have a pretty systemic Uh, allergic reaction that, again, in some cases could be potentially life-threatening. Mild symptoms, maybe, um, you know, an itchy mouth or a few hives around the mouth that'd be reasonable to use antihistamines. But when those symptoms progress to respiratory symptoms, or if, you know, if we're talking about a child and they're developing hoarseness or repetitive cough, it could be that the reaction is progressing more rapidly Um, And in that case, you'd want to administer epinephrine, even instead of the antihistamine. Epinephrine is just adrenaline. It's the same thing your body produces when it's stressed out. Um, But it has some remarkable effects when we talk about allergic reactions. It stabilizes allergy cells. Um, In an allergic reaction, airways constrict and epinephrine acts as a bronchodilator that opens up airways. Um, in allergic reactions, you have swelling of tissue and um, epinephrine reverses that swelling by acting as a vasoconstrictor and so um, uh, 
helping alleviate or stop that swelling. So it does a lot of very useful things in the setting of an allergic reaction. And actually, the sooner you use it, the more effective it tends to be. Um, uh, reasons we tell people to go to the emergency room if they have an allergic reaction and need to use the epinephrine has nothing to do with dangers associated with epinephrine. It is that, well, you've just had a bad allergic reaction, so you should go to the emergency room for further monitoring. That epinephrine can wear off, and sometimes those allergic symptoms can start to come back again. So that that um, uh, recommendation to go to the ER, sometimes people associate that with having used the epinephrine, but that's not really the reason we want people to go to the ER. We want them to go so that they, they can be monitored. Another uh, precaution because the symptoms sure. are so dangerous and can get out of control so fast. Yes. Right? Yeah. We, we had to do that once when our son was, was quite little and we didn't even understand what we, he was exposed to. We had no idea. And this is what can be so terrifying about it and right. panic inducing, uh, of course, of course, which can be a secondary type of uh, side effect for somebody yes. who lives their life with. Uh, allergies, as as you probably are familiar with, you know, we still have to carry our son still has to self carry epinephrine for sure. the rest of his life, even though he's undergone or, oral immunotherapy. Can you explain right. why that is the case? Absolutely. So, you know, people are familiar with desensitization when they think about their allergists. I mean, allergists have been offering desensitization or allergy shots as a way to treat environmental allergies, and the principles are the same. You started a low dose of a protein. You um, introduce it to the body slowly and systematically, and you can build a tolerance to that protein over time. So when we talk about treating food allergies, we're using those same principles. I think it's easiest to explain it when you talk about a peanut, um, just because the numbers are easy. When you put a peanut on a scale, it weighs a thousand milligrams. And when we start oral immunotherapy, we're starting doses under one milligram. Even the most small. Yeah. And the average kid is allergic to peanuts will react around 20 milligrams of peanut protein. So our doses that we start with are below a dose that even the most highly allergic child will react to. Mm -hmm. But you might start with those uh, small amounts of peanut protein and then um, introduce it first in the office, but have them continue that food protein at home. They'll return to our office and we'll increase the amount that we give. We may go from one milligram to two milligrams, for example. Mm -hmm. We would make sure that the child's okay with two milligrams in the office. They'll continue two milligrams at home until they come back to our office and we'll increase to five milligrams. If they've been okay with two milligrams, it's not a stretch past the body to tolerate just a little bit more. So the idea is to stay below a threshold of allergic reaction the whole time, make sure that the uh, patient is uh, safe when you make those dose increases, but then have them continue that dose regularly at home to maintain that tolerance until their next visit. Right. It takes about a year, whether we're talking about um, uh, milk or peanuts or tree nuts from, um, in the way that we've designed these protocols to get from someone from a starting dose to a uh, final treatment dose. Mm-hmm. And even once you reach those final treatment doses, the child remains allergic, but the body's been tricked to tolerate a certain amount of that protein. And so they'll continue that maintenance dose on a regular basis in order to maintain that tolerance. Right. They could have a reaction 
uh, anaphylactic reaction at any point, even later on, and in, in, that could be somewhat unexplained. Perhaps there could be stresses on the body for other reasons that cause this flare up. Right. So this is not a this is not a try this at home. This is a do not try this at home ever. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. and, and why is that? Do you get people asking you, "Well, why can't I just?" It seems fairly simple what you're doing. It, why couldn't you just give out instructions for people in the general population to do this? You know the way though. Um, we've designed the protocols. We're pretty um, systematic about it. There's uh, risks associated with it, as you point out, through the entire process um, and even into maintenance. So uh, these are some of the issues that continue to be uh, monitored. There's symptoms that can develop along the way um, that would affect um, how we choose to uh, um, progress. And um, with each of those dose increases, um, there's risk with each of, I mean, that seems when we, uh, that seems to be the time when a person might be at greatest risk. So those are times that you'd want um, some sort of medical supervision and an ability to intervene uh, if any sort of allergic reaction were to occur. Yeah, I know we were very grateful to have, uh, have, have your care and your supervision of this process and and like I said, we're willing to go to great lengths to do it. And um, tell me a little bit about the history of allergies in this country, in the U.S. And then, and then of course, I want to talk about why OIT took so long in this country to be to become, and it's still taking a long time for it to become really widespread. It's, there's a slow process here. Sure. So I, I think the, you know, one of the first trends we should recognize is that all allergic conditions have increased in prevalence in the U.S. over a period of decades. And I don't think that the human body is necessarily making a distinction when it's primed towards allergy, whether it's tree pollen or milk or egg or peanut. And um, so, again, all of these uh, conditions are increasing. And typical allergic conditions are things like environmental allergies, asthma, eczema. And then food allergies falls in uh, among those diseases as well. Over the course of uh, decades, we, you know, uh, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, we didn't see a lot of kids with food allergies, but these numbers really increased dramatically. Right. I don't remember going as like when I was a kid, there was nobody in our class who had allergies. And now that number is what out of 20 kids, how many are going to have some serious allergies? So now. we estimate about one in 13 kids have food allergies wow. and it accounts for about uh, 5.6 million kids in the U.S. That's a huge jump, right? Over a short period of time. When we look at the U.S. population as a whole, about 32 million Americans have food allergies. So this is um, not an insignificant issue. And, um, you know, as we as we've seen this increase in numbers, you know, one of your uh, questions was, well, why did it take so long for oral immunotherapy to be adopted? What was the slow, you know, uptake with this as a, a treatment option? You know, the the issues are that the treatment itself carried a risk, and in theory, you know, if if someone avoids the food that there's a, that they're allergic to, then they don't really have to worry about an allergic reaction. But you know, even from your own experience, depending on the food, when we're talking about foods like milk allergy or egg allergy, um, it's easier said than done to stay away from it, and you don't have to worry about it. It's getting easier because restaurants are now so aware. But even five years ago, and still, if you visit other countries, you really 
they may they may say, "Oh, sure, we'll take care of that," but they're not like they don't have this fear of God that I talked about earlier. Right. So, increasingly, some do, but like you, you just the contamination can be anywhere sure. in the chain. Right. You know, because we've um, peanut is the most common food um, for children to develop an allergy and remain allergic to, and the reactions can be pretty severe. So I feel like that recognition of uh, peanut allergy is there. Yeah. When you go to a restaurant, you know, people understand what you're talking about. Uh, they'll take precautions. But I just remember even those stories you shared with me with um, um, your son's milk allergy. You know, I don't even know if people really understand what a milk allergy means. I mean, right. you guys used to travel and they used to, you know, prepare stuff on the same grill as they were using butter. Yes. But I don't, and I don't think it ever clicked with those people that, his milk allergy meant anything, you know, made out of milk. <laughs> anything. And also, I want to say that there's confusion about lactose intolerance and dairy al- and, and, a, and, a, and an allergy, and they're totally different things. Right. When somebody thinks, oh, you're going to get a little tummy ache. Well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to inconvenience my kitchen staff because of somebody with a tummy ache, right? Right. And it's totally different. It's a it's a life threatening situation. Yeah. So so I mean, uh, um, again, depending on the food that you're talking about, I think the risk um, um, associated with accidental ingestion is, uh, can be very, very different. Um, right. You know, the uh, community's understanding of that food allergy and the risk it poses. Um, and then also the um, um, risk a patient might take and a parent might take in terms of pursuing uh, this type of treatment, depending on what the, you know, uh, what food the child might be allergic to. Right. Right. And I know there's a lot of parent advocacy that's been done over the years in schools to get the awareness, the PTA level at the administrator level, food allergy network being one of them in, in our in our region. But this network of people who've gotten together and advocated and gone to state houses and said, we need uh, emergency access to epinephrine at schools, right. at restaurants. We need we need good Samaritan laws in those states after tragedies, uh, sadly, where, you know, some some administrators maybe weren't willing to administer Mm-hmm. Uh, without a doctor's order, and then it, there was a fatality or a tragedy. You know, then, yeah. then of course, thankfully, some of these state houses began introducing um, Good Samaritan laws to to be able to give epinephrine on on demand. You'd asked a little bit about the history and you know how things uh, progressed. So you know, we yeah. went from a period with um, very few children with food allergies. Um, where, you know, um, uh, maybe there wasn't a lot of interest in uh, researching treatment options, but as the number of cases increased and um, having gotten to the point where one in 13 kids have food allergies now, it got to a point where it wasn't acceptable for parents and now a large number of parents to be told, well, there's nothing we can do, just avoid it. Yeah. So I, I, I guess there was a tipping point where um, number of cases increased and the parents and patients themselves said, you know, there has to be something more that we can do about this than just avoidance. Is there approval of this at a, you know, at a, I don't know, at a board level or, a, you know, do you need approval of this medically to practice in this? You know, doctors are cautious. Our first goal is to do no harm. Mm-hmm. And right. inherently, um, just by, um, offering this treatment and ingesting it on purpose, there's risk associated with it. So you have to balance that inherent risk associated with the treatment versus the benefits that you might uh, achieve. 
it, I would say that things have moved pretty quickly that now that doctors on their own started doing this um, uh, independent of the larger organization, the larger organizations have now come around. Um, tell me, uh, you know, I want to hear about your take on some of the theories about why this acceleration happened of, of, of the, of, I guess we would call it an epidemic. I, yeah. If that's technically true, right? It is an epidemic of allergies, food allergies in this country. And is it unique to the United States? What, what do you think was going on in the, in, in those years here in this country that was, that could have contributed right to, to this? Do we have ideas about that? So, you know, the increase in allergic diseases seems to be associated with industrialization. So we see these trends more in um, the U.S., uh, Western Europe, um, than we had in developing countries. And as these developing countries um, become more industrialized, we're also starting to see increases in food allergies even there. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something called the hygiene hypothesis, which says that, well, you know, if a baby's born into a sterile environment uh, and isn't exposed to bacteria and viruses early on, that's going to affect um, the development of the immune system. And that could increase risk for developing allergies as a result. Increased use of antibiotics is going yeah. to affect um, um, our bacterial makeup and our microbiome. Um, um, so there's many factors playing a role in the development of food allergies. In Israel, there's this data, right? Perhaps you can speak to this, that sure. because infants are given very, this very popular peanut snack, I guess sure. they're called bomba snacks, right. um, and they're almost like totally peanuts, right? And they're given to infants, whereas in our country, I think the, the American Pediatric Association in the 80s or something, maybe the 70s, started telling mothers and fathers to avoid um, anything a child could react to, including like honey, for example, or peanuts in that delay, that advice could have spark caused, you know, this avoid, avoidance advice could have caused the epidemic. Is that, that would be one more um, factor that um, could account for the increase in food allergies, which is when you start introducing um, these food proteins. So again, right. um, uh, genet- genetics, the hygiene hypothesis, and then the age at which you introduce these foods. Um, real quick, honey is going to be a separate issue and won't be associated with food allergy. That's increased uh, risk for botulinum toxins. So I see. Uh, for um, not giving infants and babies honey. But as far as these allergenic foods, what was already happening was we were seeing an increase in food allergies. So in order to give parents advice, well, how do you decrease this risk in development of food allergies? The American Academy of Pediatrics and um, Allergy Societies speculated, well, maybe it's because we're introducing peanuts and tree nuts and milk and egg too soon, but they just got it wrong. At least that's what we think now. And w- instead of slowing down um, the increase in numbers of people in de- developing food allergies, it may have actually exacerbated the problem. Wow. So again, in 2000, the recommendation in terms of um, introducing allergenic foods was, well, don't give a kid peanuts until they're at least three years old. By 2008, the American Academy of Pediatrics said, we're not sure what's going on. We're still seeing increases in food allergies. And so we're not going to give any advice in terms of whether you should or shouldn't introduce uh, foods at a certain age. 
And it wasn't until about 2017 that the American Academy of Pediatrics um, changed their recommendations um, based on uh, research that had come out around that time that actually early introduction uh, is what may help uh, slow the development of increased numbers of food allergies. Mm -hmm. Some of that research was based on those observations of why are we seeing increased numbers of food allergies here versus in other countries? Um, um, Israel offered a nice population because we have Jewish populations here in the U.S. that are um, uh, perhaps genetically similar to Jewish populations in Israel. And we were seeing increased numbers of the development of food allergies in the U.S. population were genetically similar versus in, in Israel. And just looking culturally at what some of the differences were, you know, peanut was a uh, um, peanut in the form of those bomba snacks was uh, something that they would give teething uh, infants and toddlers. And so early introduction of peanut didn't seem to actually increase their risk for food allergy. It seemed to prevent the mm. development of food allergy. So then making that observation um, led to, well, how do we prove that early introduction is going to prevent food allergies in this country? And so um, there was some um, pretty, um, uh, you know, groundbreaking studies published in 2015. It was called the LEAP study, which was learning early about peanut introduction. And in that study, they purposely gave kids, um, infants um, around, uh, you know, um, uh, four to six months old who are high, at high risk for developing peanut allergy, they introduced them to uh, peanut protein starting at that age. And those mm -hmm. kids who received peanut in that very early age, even if they were at high risk for developing peanut allergy, uh, were less likely to go on to develop a clinical peanut allergy. Wow. So this is where, um, you know, uh, just listening to this, a parent might say, well, should I give my child peanut? You'd want to discuss it with your pediatrician in terms of when uh, you should introduce these foods. And for high risk infants, those who already have an underlying food allergy, maybe like egg allergy, or if they have a history of severe eczema, those might be reasons to discuss it with the pediatrician, maybe undergo testing first before you start introducing those allergenic right. But in general, um, parents should be talking about to their pediatrician about um, when can I start um, complementary food introduction? Um, when can I start introducing these more um, um, allergenic foods? And uh, the, the um, trend now is going to be earlier introduction as opposed to waiting until kids are one, two or three years old. Right, right. It's such important things to hear about, and 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 really was such a remarkable development of, of re of reversing the advice. Yes, I think too, uh, Keith. You know, listening to that too, a parent might say that they did something wrong. You know, you mm -hmm. might listen to this and worry. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'd only uh, done things differently with my child, he wouldn't have developed these food allergies. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. Well, it's, it's such good news that it can be reversed because we were really set up to, you know, uh, we, we had we had our hopes, Dr. Siegel, that 
because you hear these anecdotes of people, well, maybe he'll outgrow this allergy, right? And and of course that happens occasionally, right? But it but in our case, I think our son had reached that point of past the right. point of that, I think. You know, that's so interesting when we're talking about these food allergies because it really depends on the food. So um, 80% of kids will outgrow milk and egg allergy and soy allergy. Um, but your child was among the 20% who don't. But those statistics are flipped when we talk about peanut and tree nut allergies. So only about 20% of kids are going to outgrow a peanut or tree nut allergy. So that means that most children aren't. So even among these foods, the, what we see statistically isn't the same. And right. as we are seeing increasing numbers of children with food allergies, some of our rules of thumb are changing also. So um, you know, just as an example, when we talk about uh, uh, milk and egg allergy, kids are still outgrowing it, but it's taking them longer to outgrow it. So mm-hmm. even though um, um, it, uh, milk and egg tend to be foods that children will outgrow, um, what we statistically we used to say in the ages we used to use as a marker of outgrowing that food allergy, it's taking longer even when they do outgrow it. Can you speak at all about the, I know you're not a gastroenterologist, right? Sure. but um, can you speak about, I've had a, a couple of guests recently, one of whom is, is a, um, an advocate of or, uh, heirloom grains, whole grains, sure, uh, and spoke really passionately about how really we shouldn't be using uh, industrialized typical flour, not because it's bleached, but because the flour is not really, the flour is shelf stable. And so all of the nutrients are taken out of it. And then arguably, uh, according to her and many other people who are passionate about this, um, it is, it's caused this epidemic of celiac disease uh, or wheat intolerance. That's a, a wheat allergy is different, obviously, than an intolerance, but, right. and there's an immuno response. Can you explain the difference? Are you knowledgeable about yeah. that so trend as well? You know, when, when an allergist, speaks about food allergy, typically we're talking about a very specific type of reaction, um, but the body can uh, react to foods in many, many different ways. So one of the first steps we talk about when we evaluate a patient because of food allergies is we, we're trying to establish the mechanism by which that food's causing problem. So um, the first is a typical food allergic reaction. So that is an IgE-mediated reaction. So again, it's a very uh, uh, a specific way that the food's causing problem. And it's the way that um, um, we've been discussing, which is that a person ingests the food and within 15 minutes, um, there's a massive uh, systemic allergic reaction resulting in hives, wheezing, shortness of breath, those typical types of problems. People can react to food in an immunologic way that's different than that. So celiac would be a different type of immune response to a food protein. Um, and so the symptoms are going to be different. They're not going to have those more immediate type symptoms, but they'll have a different manifestation of symptoms. But the way we would diagnose it is differently also. So if I wanted to diagnose celiac disease and I said, well, I'll do a skin test to wheat, that would be the wrong test to try and figure that out. So again, in evaluating the person, you want to understand, well, what type of symptoms brought them in? With celiac disease, it may be um, more along the lines of um, um, gas or bloating or abdominal pain, Mm -hmm. Uh, weakness. They'll be anemic. They they may have very characteristic chronic rashes. 
again, the constellation of symptoms is different also. There are also food intolerances. So a good example of a food intolerance is lactose intolerance. So in that case, a person has a pretty um, dramatic response to milk, uh, but it's the milk sugar that's causing problems, but it's not an immune response. They just lack the enzyme to digest it. So when they have milk, they all develop gas, bloating, um, um, diarrhea. In that case, again, if I did a skin test to milk, it'll come up negative, but it was the wrong test to do. So again, understanding what types of symptoms the person's having is going to lead uh, you to help make the diagnosis and then order the right test for that person. Tell, tell me a little bit about how you decided to become an allergist. Did you have any personal experience with this yourself? Sure. So, I mean, I um, was a very allergic kid. I had pretty bad uh, seasonal allergies. I grew up before there was uh, easy, even prescription, um, mm. non-drowsy antihistamines to kind of alleviate those oh. symptoms. And so I, I suffered from them myself. myself. Fortunately, I didn't have um, uh, some of the more uh, serious conditions associated with allergy, like um, severe asthma or food allergies. But even um, uh, environmental allergies was enough to impact you know, what you do, when you do it, um, Mm. uh, how you can interact and go outside, how often you get sick. And so um, I think I was more in tune to this as a specialty because of it. Um, You know, once I got to medical school, you know, it was something that I uh, was interested in and the field of immunology was something I was interested in. But by the time I got into my training, I kept a pretty open mind in terms of, you know, the type of field I would pursue, but ended up um, circling back around to allergy immunology for um, several reasons. Uh, One of which is it's one of the few fields that uh, you have the opportunity to treat both children and adults. And um, that's been a lot of fun for me Um, um, not to be... um, um, you know, restricted just to adults or just to kids. And it gives me the opportunity to uh, see an entire family. And then it's only been in the last um, uh, uh, five to six years that we have started um, actually treating uh, food allergies just uh, uh, in addition to the diagnosis. And so that's been a really rewarding uh, part of my practice to be able to offer that treatment and um, see success with so many patients. I can tell that it is for you, um, uh, and, and and I can tell that you delighted. And, and I know in our experience, uh, my son liked to uh, say that he was patient zero in Pennsylvania for, <laughs> <Yeah>. for milk, <laughs> milk desensitization, yeah. Yeah. your first patient. It's just knowing that there's a treatment option out there really lifts a weight when mm-hmm. it becomes a matter of choice. Um, yes, I have this food allergy. And I choose to continue to avoid the food versus um, I have the option of treating it and just knowing that they can play a con, I mean, have some sort of um, conscious choice and how they want to address their food allergy. You know, you can see the lift, um, the weight lifted, just uh, letting them know that that option is there. It really is. I, I can testify to that personally as a, as a family, but also professionally having treated Someone who, who, you know, we didn't discover in, in her treatment of panic and anxiety for maybe almost a year of working together. It really became clear that the underlying trauma that she experienced, um, 
preceding all of the panic and anxiety that she had as a young adult, really went back to these hospitalizations okay. from uh, anaphylaxis right? and the amount of uh, hypervigilance that that instilled in her, yes. that she could not trust her own body, that her body could attack her, that food could attack her, so to speak. Right. And that we had to do some training and desensitization at a psychological level. So I want to, I want to shout out to other treatment professionals in psychology to, to flag this as a, as an emerging, um, I think category of diagnosis that we can look at sort of a, uh, some sort of post traumatic experience that might not normally be in the patient's, um, oral presentation or in their narrative about wh- what, what things in their life have been stressful. Because as you, as you can tell from our son, but other people, you know, often these kids have to become very responsible very quick. Um, which, you know, in, in itself is you know, not a bad thing, but it, but it does leave a mark, so to speak, as we like to say, it leaves a dent psychologically. Yeah. And um, it's important yeah, to catch Keith, that. Yeah. Keith, you know, what's really interesting too is uh, for all of our, I mean, I think you'll find this interesting and you'll be able to uh, share with me what it means, but um, you know, we have patient um, intake questionnaires before we offer this treatment just to get assessment of, well, how do your food allergies affect you as a parent and how do they affect your um, child? And so the, you know, questions are, uh, you know, what's, um, how much anxiety do you have? How much, um, and, you know, scale of one to five, five being the worst, it's always level five. You know, what are the, some of the things that you worry about? fear my child might die five, you know, you know, with the child, what am I afraid of fear of dying? And, you know, when they're there talking to you um, and you're just meeting and they're discussing, well, their medical history and their food allergies, these things aren't on the surface. It's only when you have them, you know, they've been living with them for so long Um, that it, you know, it's not there on the surface, but, um, it, it must take a real, uh, toll and a, you know, pretty, um, uh, deep one at that, but it's not on the surface. Take some time and and some trust in the relationship to, for a person to begin to sort of let their guard down and say, yeah, you know, actually I can, I can, if I'm being honest, my pulse is up all the time. Yeah. Wanted to, you know, give props to our other allergists as well. Dr. Theodore Kim in Dulles, Virginia. And so for people who want to look you up as well and find you, I want to uh, make sure people are aware of where to find you in Philadelphia and how they can reach out to you if they are if they have questions, but also Dr. Theodore Kim as well. We can't say enough uh, amazing things about him. And, uh, you know, like you, maybe it's the allergist, maybe it's because you're doing this great work and you're seeing you're seeing uh, results, right? I imagine as a, as a physician, you want to be able to see some results. You don't want to just send people home with a uh, a plan to sort of live with, you know, a problem, right. even though that sometimes that's about, that's, that's helpful for people too, to help right. them accept things. But, you know, he's, he has a great attitude also and just very uh, happy to be doing his work. So yeah. any, yeah. any other things you want to say about how people can reach out to you, whether you're taking new patients for OIT? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, we have offices in Center City, Philadelphia and in um, Winmore, uh, Pennsylvania, which is a Philadelphia suburb. Our website is philadelphia-allergy.com. And um, the name of our practice is Chestnut Hill Allergy and Asthma Associates. And uh, yes, we're taking new patients and, um, you know, uh, continue to have kids finish this treatment and then have kids take their place. 
um, and in terms of um, um, because there is a start and an end to this, which is pretty amazing uh, yeah. to see. So um, yeah, we're we're always eager um, to help, and um, um, it, again, it's been um, you know I'm grateful to the patients too, and to um, you, Keith, because you uh, you know trusted me. Uh, early on to take care of your son. So um, that meant a lot to, to me as well. Yeah, you're very welcome. It was uh, our, our delight and our, our pleasure to get to know you and, and uh, super pleased to speak with you today. Dr. Manav Sagal, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.